Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Molly, uh, my name's Ben. I started listening to your podcast in January of this year, and it's been the only podcast I've ever been able to listen to with any sort of regularity or consistency. So thank you for that. That means a lot. Um, I am 33 years old, and I've received so many diagnoses in my life that it feels like they don't have any meaning anymore. Uh, BPD, OCD, ADHD, autism, I have traumatic brain injury, uh, lupus. I just I feel like a caricature of a sick person, like Charlie Brown syndrome, and. I guess I was just wanting to ask you um, about, I don't even, I don't think you have this answer, but I'm trying to figure out if my life is worth living. Uh, I feel like I get by through escapism with romantic uh, relationships and binge eating. I go to therapy, I do physical therapy, I eat well, I try and take care of my body, but it all feels like so empty and meaningless it feels like i'm putting on a performance for a an empty vessel i just feel like there's nothing inside of me and i i i don't know what more i could be doing anyway thank you welcome to back from the borderline i'm your host molly and i don't want to talk to your personality i want to talk to your soul The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, 
burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. On this podcast, you'll learn to view your symptoms as saviors, as alerts from your body, mind, and spirit that want to let you know when you're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of your soul. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. I want to thank Ben for this incredibly vulnerable voicemail. It hit me right in the heart because I'm familiar with these feelings of struggling with lists of diagnoses, different ones from each person you see, getting by through numbing and escaping and performing all the motions that are supposed to add up to a life worth living but still feeling so desperately empty, searching and grasping and begging the universe for some understanding of what the point of all of this is. And I chose to play Ben's voicemail today because this particular episode, because this is what we talk about, finding meaning and the desperate struggle that we must undertake, the plunge into the underworld of our own psyche that is required to bring back the knowledge that holy grail of meaning. And as you know, on this podcast, there are no quick fixes, no cures, no finish line of healing, only eternal unfolding. And these are complicated feelings and complicated questions that Ben is struggling with and many of us are too. But today, I bring you someone who I think is very well-placed to address them. On today's episode of the podcast, we are welcoming a very special guest, but I wanted to provide a proper introduction that will allow you to get the best possible experience out of our conversation. Long-term listeners of the podcast are well aware of the profoundly positive and transformative impact the work of Carl Jung has had on my own life and the integration of my darkest aspects. But some listeners who are newer to the podcast may not be as familiar with Jungian psychology and its concepts, so I thought that I'd provide a brief introduction. The complex and nuanced nature of Carl Jung's work, as well as the many analysts who have spent their entire lives expanding upon his theories, is something I could never summarize in just a few minutes but I'll do my best to provide a bit of an introduction to give you more context for the conversation you're going to hear. Jungian psychology, also known as analytical psychology, was developed by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung. It's a psychological framework that explores the depths of the human psyche and emphasizes the importance of individual development, self-awareness, and the integration of different aspects of the self. For those of us who suffer with 
symptoms of emotion dysregulation, chronic feelings of emptiness, suicidal ideation, splits in the psyche, the inability to look inward at our own darker aspects. Jungian psychology can be profoundly transformative and it is hardly ever referenced in shorter term methods of psychological treatment that are most popular here in the West. One of the core concepts of Jungian psychology is that of the collective unconscious. Carl Jung proposed that there is a collective layer of the unconscious mind shared by all humans, containing universal symbols, images, and experiences. This collective unconscious is thought to influence our behavior, thoughts, and emotions in ways that we might not be consciously aware of. Another core concept of Jungian psychology is that of archetypes, or universal symbols, patterns, and images that appear across culture and time. Archetypes represent fundamental human experiences and are present in myths, fairy tales, religions, and dreams. Some common archetypes include the hero, the shadow, anima or animus, and the self. In Jungian psychology, the persona is our social mask or identity that we present to the world. It's how we adapt and present ourselves to fit into societal norms and expectations. However, it can sometimes lead to a disconnection from our true self. The shadow is a concept in Jungian psychology that represents our unconscious, darker aspects that we tend to repress or deny or even project onto other people. The shadow encompasses our fears, desires, and unresolved conflicts. Integrating our shadow involves recognizing and accepting these hidden parts, leading to a more balanced and authentic self. In Jungian psychology, there is a belief in the anima and animus. These are gender-related aspects present in the psyche of all human beings. The anima represents the feminine qualities within men, and the animus represents the masculine qualities within women. The idea is that integrating these aspects help us achieve inner wholeness and balance. In Jungian psychology, the self, with a capital S, is the center of the psyche and represents the striving for something called individuation, which is the process of becoming one's true and unique self. Individuation encompasses all aspects of the psyche and strives for balance and integration. Individuation is the central goal of Jungian psychology. It's the process of developing one's unique potential and becoming a fully integrated and authentic individual. Individuation involves embracing and integrating various aspects of our psyche, including the conscious and the unconscious, leading to a more balanced and harmonious sense of self. Carl Jung also believed that dreams provide insights into the unconscious mind and helps us understand our inner conflicts, desires, and unresolved issues. By analyzing and working with our dreams, we can reveal this archetypal imagery and symbolism that can offer guidance for personal growth. Carl Jung also introduced the concept of what we know as synchronicity, 
which refers to meaningful coincidences that can't be explained by conventional cause and effect relationships. These events suggest a deeper connection between our inner psychological state and the world around us. Jungian theory offers a comprehensive framework for understanding the messy, complicated nature of the human psyche, pushing us towards deeper levels of self-awareness, personal growth, and integrating all aspects of ourselves, even the shadowy parts. Two of the most commonly preferred treatments for mental health disorders in the West are CBT and DBT. This is primarily down to the fact that these treatment modalities are shorter in duration and more easily covered by health insurance. Jungian analysis and standard short-term treatment methods like CBT and DBT both have different approaches and strengths, and it's important to note that the choice between these approaches depends on your needs and preferences. But there are some advantages that Jungian analysis offers over these standard short-term treatment methods. First, the depth and complexity that Jungian analysis offers. Jungian analysis dives deeply into the unconscious, exploring symbolic meanings, archetypes, and the underlying patterns that influence our behavior. This can be particularly beneficial for anyone seeking a more profound understanding of their psyche and a comprehensive exploration of their personal growth journey. In addition to this, Jungian analysis often takes a longer-term perspective, allowing individuals to work through their complex issues over time. This can be especially useful for anyone with deep-seated, persistent, or complex psychological challenges that might require extended exploration and integration. The Jungian approach emphasizes individuation which involves achieving a deeper sense of self and personal wholeness. This can be valuable for anyone seeking a more profound transformation and self-discovery process beyond what we simply get with these shorter-term treatment modalities, which is symptom relief or making us more palatable and behave within the confines of our common culture. Jungian analysis focuses on integrating our unconscious material, within our dreams, fantasies, and other types of symbolic imagery. This can help us as individuals sense aspects of ourselves that might not be immediately apparent to our conscious awareness. You'd be surprised what is lurking in the depths of your unconscious mind. Jungian psychology also acknowledges a spiritual dimension of human experience and can help us explore questions related to meaning, purpose, and our connection to something greater than ourselves. If you've ever wondered, laying awake at night, after a particularly bad episode of insomnia or suicidal ideation and thought, why am I here, and gotten no answers from mainstream methods of psychology, the work of Carl Jung, as well as the other incredible analysts who have studied his work, may provide you with that meaning you've been looking for. And speaking of finding meaning, that's exactly what we will be discussing with today's guest. Dr. James Hollis was born in Springfield, Illinois and graduated from Manchester University in 1962 
and Drew University in 1967. For 26 years, he taught humanities in various colleges and universities before retraining as a Jungian analyst at the Jung Institute of Zurich, Switzerland between 1977 and 1982. He's currently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, D.C. He served as the executive director of the Jung Educational Center in Houston, Texas for many years, was executive director of the Jung Society of Washington until 2019, and now serves on the JSW Board of Directors. He's a retired senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. He was first director of training of the Philadelphia Jung Institute and is vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation. Additionally, he's a professor of Jungian studies for Saybrook University of San Francisco in Houston. James has written more than 19 books, which have been translated into 19 languages. His newest book is called A Life of Meaning, Relocating Your Center of Spiritual Gravity. This book asks us to ask ourselves, what is it that brings meaning to our lives? We live in a culture devoid of meaning, this culture tells us to seek wealth, power, and prestige, or even enrollment in someone else's idea of a worthy cause. But where do we turn to when these paths fail to fulfill our need for purpose? Dr. Hollis says, when the old stories and beliefs that once defined us have played out and grown exhausted, our task is to access our inner compass the promptings of the psyche that help us find our way through the complex thickets of choice. This new book, A Life of Meaning, is Dr. Hollis's profound exploration of the nature of meaning and how we can orient toward it or away from it with the choices we make. Hollis offers an examination of myth, literature, historical figures, and the wisdom of depth psychology that provides penetrating insight into the search for purpose. We all have to discover our own sense of meaning. No one can do it for us. In his new book, James offers no easy answers or feel-good certainties. Instead, he shares his most valuable questions and reflections that can help us find the courage, persistence, and inspiration to navigate our own odyssey. He writes, It's humbling work, this process of getting our lives back. Yet I submit to you that's worth the price of the ticket, for in the journey, our lives become ever more luminous. I'll admit, I was fangirling pretty hard in this interview. I couldn't believe that I had the opportunity to interview James directly. I've been a huge fan of his work, and his writings have been massively influential in my own recovery journey. I was probably more nervous than I've ever been in any interview I've done so far. And this also came off the back of 20 minutes of technical difficulties that James was very, very patient with navigating. So without further ado, it is my honor and pleasure to bring you my wonderfully nourishing and life-affirming conversation with Dr. James Hollis. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. So we are here, Jim, to talk about your brand new book, A Life of Meaning, and I thought I would start the interview, you know, with a light question. What does it all mean? Well, what if I gave you the answer to that question? Quickly, you would find it un unsatisfying for some reason. So Tell me. I, I think what it means is each of us is uh, stirred by something within to uh, ask, what is my life journey about and what does life mean? And that's appropriate. I mean, that we're, we're the animal that can ask that question. So uh, by all means, that, that gives us essentially an introduction to our own psychological life and our spiritual life at the same time. I thought a great place to start would be one of the quotes that you mentioned near the beginning of the book. And you said that one of the most common questions that clients ask you is, where do I start in this analysis of my journey? You said your reply is, well, start with your patterns. And then you wrote, you don't wake up in the morning while brushing your teeth and looking in the mirror and say, today I'm going to do the same old stupid things I've done for decades, but chances are you will. By the end of the day, you'll have replicated some of those choices and some of those values and the consequences pile up. And I, there's a question here, but I thought the listeners would love this part. You write that much of what we do is driven by or influenced by our internalized stories, and you call these fragmentary personal narratives or splinter scripts. And something that struck me that you mentioned in chapter one was your reference to the old folk wisdom that says no prisons are more confining than the ones we know not we're in. And I'd love to hear you speak more about these internalized stories that can begin to feel like our own self-made prisons and how these splinter scripts, as you call them, how they develop and the impact they have on the way we see ourselves and the way that we see the world around us. Well, first of all, there's a natural tendency in each of us to think to some degree what has happened to me is about me. Mm. You know, stuff happens. You're born into family X instead of Y, and family X creates a certain kind of atmosphere and a certain kind of emotional traffic that influences how you see the world and how you see yourself. If you were born into that other family, you'd come up with some different narratives about that. So we we are the animal that seeks to understand, to make sense of things. It helps us perhaps predict uh, something, and therefore we're more oriented to the reality of our lives. But it also, more importantly, I think, satisfies our own need for, for understanding and some sort of narrative that makes sense of life. The problem is, of course, who's creating these narrative stories? It's a child. And a child who has very little comparative possibilities, you know, you don't know what it's like to live in another setting, you don't know what this is about, you don't know what that's about. 
and and so by the time we leave home we're swimming with stories and you either serve those stories which will create repetitive patterns into the next generation or you'll spend your life running from them you won't be indifferent to them um if perchance they happen to be supportive and helpful to your growth terrific you're you're fortunate for most people the stories produce contradictions in people's inner life and um you know for example one of the issues that all of us face do you really have permission to live your life a different life I don't mean just as a kind of adolescent uh, eccentricity I'm talking about do you really have internal permission to say this is my life I've got to make sense of it and I'm going to pursue it in the best way I can figure out how to do that or is life conditional and frankly for most of us life was conditional and your need to fit in to stay out of harm's way get your needs met as best you could um had to do with meeting those conditions hmm. conditions and of course for every adaptation there's the potential of further self-estrangement so that's yeah, a strange paradox there <laughs> we're reacting to also at some level becomes problematic to us maybe 10 20 30 years later hmm. so I often am working with people I only work with adults, but I'm working with people who wonder why they get ambushed by these old patterns or 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 why certain things show up in their relationships all the time. Of course, that's because they have these splinter narratives. That is to say, fragmentary scripts that say you can do this, but you can't do that or yeah. to do in a set of circumstances. It's not even a conscious voice. It's, it becomes in time a sort of psychological reflex. And when we think about it, how much of our life on a daily basis is really conscious and how much of it it's on automatic pilot. And the older I get, the more it appears it's on the it's the latter. You know, there's so much of us is uh, is is conditioned by stimulus response, stimulus response. And again, some of that was protective for us at some point. But in later life, those very adaptations and stories often are limitations. Mm. And things I talk about in that book is my, the biggest discovery I had during my own years of analysis in Zurich was what you have become is now your chief obstacle hmm. it's a real paradox because you work hard to find a mode of adaptation to life that helps you survive and be perhaps productive um but it often is responding to external circumstances rather than being generated from something inside that's seeking expression through you hmm. So our adaptations, again, are often the the thing that bind us to that disabling past or the, the past of the child and, and so forth. If I could share the previous hours I've just had today, already four hours with clients, I could give you examples of people's lives that are blocked or stymied by the presence of old stories. Wow. And the, the the fact that those stories have so much power and to some degree are mostly unconscious. Problem with the unconscious, of course, it's unconscious. So I don't yeah. know. Right. That's why I say you start with your patterns, particularly the ones that are troubling to you or to others. Why, for example, do I want to say something, but when, I, when the time comes, I, it, it passes, and I'm for reasons I don't know. I wasn't able to express my point of view or. Mm -hmm. Or I wound up agreeing with someone just to sort of go along again because it was easier that way. See, that's an archaic story. And ultimately, 
what was once protected, if you realize, becomes disabling to your own integrity. Because mm -hmm. it means you're not operating out of your truth or out of your adult capacity, but responding out of the sort of orientation that those stories liked for you. You know, as, as a character in Faulkner's Requiem for the Nun says, the past isn't dead, it's not even past. See, it's not like we're dwelling on the past. It's that the past isn't past. It's it's with you and operative. And one of the ways in which that shows up, of course, is in our dreams and, and other, you know, repetitive patterns in our lives. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, this is, is complicated work to, to sort of the inner architecture of anybody's life. Yeah. And, and if we don't, then we're responding mostly on automatic pilot throughout most of our lives. It's incredibly destabilizing, isn't it? Because when you start realizing how much of what you do is unconscious, then the natural thing to start thinking about is, then what even am I? And that's when you can really start understanding people slipping into periods of psychosis, right? I can even relate to that very much. And thankfully later in life i found i've found had to find a more mystical outlet for these types of feelings because it's incredibly destabilizing when you start thinking about that stuff something else that came up for me when you were responding to that is i just finished an eight part deep dive on toxic shame for my listeners and um part of that research included diving into the work of john bradshaw and you know he talks about healing you even said the word healing the shame that binds you you mentioned the word binds and he talks and you know i'm sure in that 12-step community they refer to the adult child i wonder especially you having worked with so many clients and have a wider perspective of the world now how much of our suffering as humanity do you think is tied to this childlike way of thinking and reacting it's like we're just a bunch of of children being reacted to stories about each other rather than interacting with our our true selves well that's absolutely the case and uh, it gets scarier when you think about many of our leaders our politicians are essentially children in big bodies with big powers yeah. with toys that are potentially lethal so yes. uh, it's very depressing when you look at the uh, and i don't want to get into politics here but when you look sort of sorry state of political discourse in our country at this point it, it's essentially quarreling children you know and yes. rather to what degree can we address global warming? To what degree can we address the inequities in our income, et cetera? To what degree can we really rebuild this country, et cetera? Those are practical problems. And why are our leaders not addressing practical problems? Well, the truth is they have so many complexes themselves, that, like chasing squirrels or something. You know? We got to get you in there, Jim. Do some analysis. <laughs> end of me i think so <laughs> it's true you know, washington you know oh. so there there you go i think this is a perfect segue because another thing you mention in the book is the concept of wounded self-esteem and you mentioned that many of these coping and defense mechanisms is tied um to more self-destructive behavior that these arise from what you describe as core wounds to our self-esteem and how does one's self-esteem become wounded. Many times the child is tempted to think what happens to me is about me. So right. why, for example, would a child be shamed by poverty? 
or disease or violence or alcoholism or whatever the the is whatever the elf in the living room is yeah. and you know you get defined by that i am that which is trying to be uh, save myself from being squeezed out of the room by this elephant well how could you not be affected by that and and of course what is the story that you make up around that partly conscious partly unconscious and then practically speaking what does that story make you do or what does it keep you from doing in your life you see and you can even ask yourself a question mm. about a certain complex or issue what is this making me do or what is it keeping me from doing with my life and mm. then go and what you know then constitutes the adult's agenda for action because if you don't act on this what's the point you know you're, you're simply conceding that I'm going to be a creature of fate rather than in some way being a vehicle of how the life force expresses itself through me and, and enters this world. So beautifully put. Speaking from experience as someone who really only started, I'm 33 now, but I started, I would imagine like really having that, oh shit, <laughs> psychotic kind of break when I was around 28, where I just went, I asked my partner, I literally said, do you think about your thoughts. Do you, you know, you, like I literally had never even addressed my inner narrative and my partner at the time, he was raised in a house where he had uh, monks from Tibet staying with him. This man was exposed to some amazing spiritual uh, guidance, but I growing up in the Midwest was not. And so I'm speaking for the majority of my listeners who are in my position where they hadn't even considered their inner world until Maybe they haven't even now listening to this, and this is the first time, but I'm, I'm asking you, I suppose, is how can someone who, like me, hadn't even thought of their inner world at all, how can they begin dipping their toe into this kind of work without feeling worried that they're going to have an episode of psychosis? Because I've had even listeners ask me that. I really want to dip my toe into this, but I'm scared. Well, I, I certainly understand that. and. Mm by far the most cases this is simply the kind of inquiry mm. not idle speculations kind of inquiry that allows you to get your life back potentially that's why it's so important because mm. otherwise you're just a series of respondings and that's not a very pretty thought when you think about it yeah um, but the you know one does have to hold on to the ego position mm. and allow yourself to recognize that the voices we all have within us and the images we have within us are intrapsychic and the ego is in charge of conducting our life in the outer world it's our foreign secretary so to speak mm -hmm. it not only looks both ways when we cross the street it decides what are my values what am i going to do for vocation how am i going to be in relationship etc etc um those are important executive functions but the ego has to realize it's not just the boss it's it's one of the clusters of energy but there are many other clusters of energy and the key would be the dialogue with them mm. we pay attention in analytic work to dreams is to recognize that the psyche through dreams often embodies these other elements within our psyche that allows us to objectively look at them in a way we couldn't have heretofore and in doing so, you can take a conscious position vis-a-vis -a, -vis a certain issue or value or see what you need to do with it, you see. So mm. I, 
there, there was a saying in the 19th century about the religious groups. There, the, the number of people who need to be awakened is far greater than the number of people who need to be comforted. <laughs> I, yeah. I would mindful of the fact that some people can't do inner work because their ego is, is uh, you know, so, has been so overwhelmed. It's been damaged in significant ways, but that doesn't, it's a very minority kind of thing. It's, it's most, most people have the strength to do it. And then you have to ask the question, and, and what happens if I don't do it? Well, you, as I said, you'll be on automatic pilot and you'll be responding to the uh, loudest voice in your exterior. <laughs> In some way, this is about regaining personal authority. You, you know, you had it when you were a child. It was called instinct. It told you what was right and wrong for you. Told you when you were hungry, when to sleep, and so forth. But through these adaptations, we get separated from that. Yeah. Live in a world of social constructs, you know, like work schedules and and expectations from people. So beneath all of this is the natural instinctual self that knows what's right for you. See, another way of putting this, something inside of you knows what's right for you. Yeah. Something knows what's right. Yes. And as a child, you probably were closer to it than you are now. Yeah. But you have to sort of re re recover a relationship to that inner voice. Mm. That this is right or this is wrong. And I've suggested the principle of resonance as a key. If you're doing what's right for you, it will resonate. You, you'll feel that hum inside. The energy is with you, um, and you feel the rightness of it, even if it's difficult. Creating, for example, can be very laborious. Yeah. And and at the same time, you feel the rightness of because something in you is pushing you and supporting you in that direction. Yeah. Now, mobilize energy and often have to to serve purposes like earn a living, pay your bills, change the baby's diaper. That's all reality-based. Um, however, at the same time, if, if your life is only responding to the outer world, it's going to be a superficial life, and it'll be someone else's life. You'll just, again, be responding to the largest pressures out there. So mm -hmm. the key is to sort of ask yourself again, what is the, what is the voice within that knows what's right for me and when things resonate you'll know the difference i've found that to be very true in my own life but it's so you what you mentioned before is one has to get themselves to that quiet still place to even learn how to hear it and how to trust it as well i told one of my listeners who wrote me the other day that that was talking about this fear of the inner world and psychosis I love the psychology of the tarot because I find that when I was first starting to do inner work, it was helpful for me to have some of those images because I didn't even know where to begin. And so, and I also resonated with the hero's journey concept and the heroine's journey. And the first card is, or the second card rather, is the magician. And he's pointing one finger up and one finger down, right? And I told my listener this because, and I thought it was beautiful for your book too, because it's finding your center and that balance. And the, the imagery of the magician is pointing one finger up at the sky, knowing that you need to have a connection to the divine, but also have the ability to come down and also be here in the material right. world as well. Sure, sure. Jung himself said, and by the way, we're talking on Jung's birthday by coincidence. Love that. And he was exploring his own uh, inner life in his mid-30s. Mm. He, he said he could see himself being caught up in the swirl of that, but he has said, 
I have to remind myself I'm a I'm a parent I have children to support yes. I have patients who are waiting for me and he would also do creative work such as sculpting or or, or painting uh, as a way of giving life to those inner images without being dominated by them or, or uh, controlled by them. Mm. So, um, you know, there are ways, there are techniques to gain access to the inner world without being in any way um, igno ignorant of or um, not responsive to the legitimate demands that the outer world makes upon us. You know, you, 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 you have to make a living, right? You do. You, want to be in relationship these these things are to be served their values and necessities and at the same time not neglect the inner life right Whitman my my former colleague she now deceased from Toronto or from actually uh, London and she said you know I always told my clients you, you have to devote a minimum of one hour per day to inner work if we're going to be in an analysis together and people would invariably say but I don't have that much time <laughs> actually what you're saying is you don't give it any priority yeah unless you would be willing to do that that means work with your dreams active imagination meditation whatever form it took mm -hmm. you're not yet serious about this process and mm -hmm. that's pretty elemental but I think that gets to the question yeah are you going to take your own soul um seriously enough to pay attention when I use the word soul, I'm using it in the sense of it's the literal meaning of the Greek word psyche. So your your, your psyche is your soul. Right? Mm. It knows what's right for you. It's seeking its expression in the world through you. And, you know, ego consciousness has to support that. If it doesn't, we're going to be at odds with ourselves. We'll be, quote, neurotic. Yes. We'll, we'll uh, fighting ourselves all the time and necessarily be much in the external world that supports you with this so that's why you have to pay even more attention to the care and feeding of the soul on on your own because your 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 culture won't be helpful to you otherwise in most cases i know because i witnessed the before and afters in such a recent part of my life is neglecting the inner world comes at a really really grave price that's just psychopathology to begin with but it can also progress to dis-ease right which is a lot of the the work that's being done now and it's perfect because i had a question for you here and it's uh part of the book where you describe you know the meaning of psychopathology and i just want to read a tiny snippet for my listeners so that you can respond to it you wrote um i've often said to people in psychoanalysis this isn't about curing you because you're not a disease you're a process symptoms are autonomous intrusions of the flow of daily life and you mention we live in a world that wishes to as quickly as possible extinguish suffering through a behavioral change or pill stop and think for a moment about the word psychopathology psyche is greek for soul pathos refers to suffering and logos means word or expression so you said psychopathology literally is the expression of suffering of the soul wouldn't it make sense to stop and pay attention and you even wrote that the origin of the Greek word for therapy was to listen or attend to. And Jim, this made me stop dead in my tracks because at the beginning of every single podcast episode I record, it's part of my intro that I ask listeners to think of their symptoms as saviors. And I said that the definition of savior, you know, is one that saves from danger or destruction. And that reframe, thinking about 
This whole podcast started with me questioning the idea of a personality being disordered at all. And is that even possible? Because thinking of my symptoms as disease, right? Like my personality was some kind of cancerous tumor was not empowering to me, but thinking about it as you framed it and thinking of my symptoms as saviors empowered me. And I guess my question for you is, why do you think we've strayed so far away from this, this idea of symptoms as saviors or this uh, understanding the word of psychopathology as you describe? And how does that resonate with you? Well, at one level, it's the most natural thing in the world if you're feeling bad to want to feel better. So you'd like to get rid of your symptoms. Yeah. Uh, and and the, in the world in which we live, the struggle with the soul is an issue of such magnitude that most people have suffered a failure of nerve that well, I'd rather have five easy steps to this or that 30 day program to whatever, or even better still to take care of all of this. Yeah. And all of that were possible, then we'd see the results. The truth is, uh, this is a lifetime question. It's a lifetime work because what is true for me today may very well not be true tomorrow or the day after. And so I have to be alert to the changes that are going through the course of one's life. You mentioned you were 33. Well, I'm 83. So that's 50 years difference. And yeah. I'm dealing with some significant health challenges at this point, having had several surgeries and so forth in the last two years. I spent almost more time in hospitals than I did uh, outside. And um, I can say it got my attention, that's for sure. Yeah. But what's interesting to me, it has also quickened my interest in the very questions that we're talking about here. Because mm -hmm. when I ask myself, what is it that most interests me? It is these kinds of questions, asking questions, dealing with possible answers, sharing this with others, and engaging in a conversation around that. Yeah. That's, that's the role of teaching. It's the role of mentoring. It's the role of being an analyst. And um, so, if anything, I would say my work has deepened, mm. and that it continues to deepen, and I'm dealing with the mystery of mortality. One of my clients at the moment has glioblastoma and has only a few weeks to live. Mm. Our conversation isn't particularly light that either one of us would have wanted to have, but in, in the midst of all of that, the question of meaning is, is profound and central. So let's let's give ourselves the recognition of, of being creatures of the spirit in addition to creatures of the belly and creatures of the heart, because these these questions matter. You know, if good questions give you an interesting life. Simple questions like, well, who's going to take care of me out there? Well, that's what a child asks. And if the adult is still asking that question later, it's a whole different animal, right? Then there's something in me that hasn't grown up. I'm going to take care of myself. But then the question that comes is, all right, where, where, where am I going to dig in here? And what is life asking of me now? And frankly, to ask the question, what is worthy of my service? Mm -hmm. Because don't ask that question consciously. You're in service to those old complexes and splinter narratives or the most the dominant pressures that are coming to you from the external world. So one way or the other, we're always in service to something. So you better make it worthy of your soul's journey. And if fear is standing in the way, then fear is the enemy. That's your enemy, right? And that's what you have to, to grapple with. And out of all of this comes this marvelous short 
you know, pause between two great mysteries. That was Jung's definition of life is a short pause between two great mysteries. And the question is, now, what are you going to do with that pause? Do you think that making money is what it's about? <laughs> about having power? Um, I mean, the great democracy of the grade tells us <laughs> we're all headed in the same direction. So what, what, what is this short pause about in your life? And guess what? You get to figure that out. You know, that was a joy, a privilege, and I think a sacred obligation. And scary. <laughs> oh, it's scary. But then yeah. don't ask the question, and you're going to be settling in for somebody else's answer. Yeah. Else with good intentions might say, well, this is what you need to do with your life, you know? Yeah. Um, being a parent, for example, is so difficult because we presume to think we know what's right for our children. When the truth is what's right for their souls is going to be something they'll figure it out down the line, we hope. Um, and our, our good advice may be quite contrary to whatever is their long-term interest. Yeah. But the, if, if you don't, as Socrates said, you know, the unexamined life isn't worth living. Well, what does that really mean? Well, it just means I'm living unconsciously. And if that's what you want to do, then, you know, try to be a happy carrot. I had a client years <laughs> I just wish I could be a happy carrot and not have to. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's too late for that, right? <laughs> Wait, I just I just came across my vocation, Jim. Yes, That's it. there you go. There you go. You can change your whole website and talk about <laughs> back from the carrot line. There you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's it's so true though because it is a lot. It made me emotional. You talking about the. The great mystery of it all um ever since i was very little i was probably about five that i would come to my parents asking them what happens after i die and not only that a question that seemed to scare the shit out of them even more which was what was going on before i was born that almost freaked me out more and ever since i was little i was terrified of space i was terrified of the ocean and it led me to and the symptom of bpd is chronic feelings of emptiness i think about emptiness a lot and that's why spirituality brought a true integral spirituality brought and a exploration of mysticism was very soothing to me because at least i felt ah here are my people who talk about this emptiness and are not frightened of it because when i approached the adults in my life jim with these big questions the response i received was don't think about that what is wrong with you right like don't think about those things and i to myself and i still feel this way what else the hell are you gonna think about that's all you should be thinking about why do you not want to talk about that i find these conversations with you very nourishing and i'm sure that my listeners do as well because we live in a society where we don't want to look at those questions yes i saw a t-shirt recently where which said as my mother used to tell me all the time, what the hell's wrong with you? Well, because you see, the child was close to the sense of wonder, curiosity, and, and terror also. Yeah. Magnitude of it all, sure. Yeah. And you know, the, the, there was a point when you were floating through time and space in that internal sea of the womb, and then you were violently expelled into this world where everything is contingent. And at the end of that, you 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 die, right? So haven't <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, wouldn't a person ask a question along the way about what's this about? And 
not flock to uh, uh, groups that necessarily are going to offer a package to uh, answer. And they may be well-intended. I'm not criticizing that. Yeah, yeah. All right, what fits them doesn't, I, I wouldn't wear their shoes. I have to try on shoes for myself. That's right. You fit for me, you know? What, if, if I think, I mean, it's such common sense to say, let me wear clothes that fits me, um, that fit me, and, and uh, you know, but, but I'll accept anybody else's understandings of the cosmos or any, anybody else's understanding of what you yes. should do. I mean, there's, there's some real disconnect there. Didn't there's you a, say in the book, you said a phrase that Jung said about like wearing shoes that are too small or something? What? Most of the time we live, he said, we live in shoes too small for us, meaning yeah. we live those adaptive lives and yeah. good reasons. They were once protective. They helped you fit in. That's right. And fitting in can't be the sole source of your instructions in life either, because that leads to a very, very diminished life. I was the biggest skeptic ever until I had, you know, and I never talk about it on the podcast because I just think that as soon as you start talking about any visions or mystical experiences that you've had, like words just can't describe them. So I had my own kind of mystical experience around the same time that I was uh, having those, Zaz, do you hear your own thoughts kind of thing? We still laugh about that conversation, my, my husband and I. I then started approaching my spirituality as like a thread I was following. It's like you said, right? I, I did away with the, the scripts that other people told me because when I found myself in organized religion, I was very put off by the exclusionary aspect, the dogmatic aspect. If you do this, then you're bad. And so I thought, nah. And so I have found such pleasure in following the threads that I find in, in spirituality and it was so nourishing because reading in your book just about that's where I feel like I'm, I'm in my life right now is that those old scripts are falling away and I'm finding such empowerment in finding my own way of putting those pieces together. And hearing you describe it was really, really helpful for me. And I know it'll be helpful for my listeners too. Well, to, to, to give a personal example, thinking mm. about with your age, when I was 33, I was starting into a depression. <laughs> had achieved everything that I wanted with my for my life at that point. And when I was 35, I was really in it and entered my first hour of analysis, little knowing that it would lead to profound changes in my career and I lived and so forth. And um, I now look upon that depression as um, an invitation to, to say, all right, depression means something is pressed down what is it that is wanting expression here mm. and in responding to the dynamics of early family life as well as certain cultural issues going on at the time mm. I, I think as a child i retreated in too much into the interior life and, and retreated also into the life of the mind so i became an academic and there's nothing wrong with that. I still am a teacher and I, I still love teaching. Um, but I began to realize I, how much I had depended upon the life of the intellect and as a way of protecting myself from the magnitude of feelings that I had, in, in fact, about things. Well, if you cut off your feelings, you're, you're cutting off a vital source of, of qualitative analysis. In other words, you don't your feelings. Your feelings are autonomous responses to how life is being seen by your psyche. Hmm. You used to, to ignore that or anesthetize that if you wish, but sooner or later, that's one of the 
In other words, if, if say you're in career X and you find yourself profoundly bored by it, but you think, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. The money's here. My academic training has prepared me for this. Right. Well, just imagine spend the rest 20 years, 30 years of your life doing what you don't want to do. <laughs> it depress you. So depressing. I know because I just quit my full-time job to be doing this full-time. It was scary, but what was scarier was imagining working in that job that I didn't feel anything for. Yeah, exactly. And and something in you would have been be betraying your deepest soul if you'd stayed there, you yes. see. So I came to understand that the depression, and sometimes there are physiological causes of depression. So I'm talking about the psychological dimensions of depression. Mm -hmm. The autonomous withdrawal of support and approval by the psyche from those projects and investments that the ego complex has chosen to to make <laughs> working hard at x y and z and and your psyche's reality is really something quite different mm. and it'll you know you can force it through perhaps but there's there's something inside it's not going to be a happy camper so you know like it begins to withdraw its approval and support which is what happened to me in that depression yes Depression lifted when I began to address these questions and, of course, moved in a, in a quite different direction in my life. It led me ultimately to uh, uh, travel to Zurich and to undertake training and come out in a completely different field of endeavor. But, you know, I, I value the early years. They weren't wrong. They were necessary experiments. One of the things one people have to get over is, so you screwed up at some point in your life? Well, welcome to the club. Everybody does. <laughs> You have to learn to forgive yourself. You have to say, what do I need to learn from that? Mm. Um, and, and what led me into that choice in the first place? Because something like it could come up again, and yes. I could be threatened with the same choice. Um, and, and that's making it a constructive experience, and, and you move on. That's why Jung said we don't solve these problems, but we can outgrow them. And that's a big distinction. It reminds me of what you wrote in the book, because you wrote, I'm, I am what's wanting expression through me, not what happened to me. That's right. And by that, I mean, it's your personhood, your, your, yeah. your personality. And I don't mean that in the sense of being, um, you know, popular with people. I'm talking about your, your core identity is what you are most asked to share with other people. Mm -hmm. And whatever talents and insights you have, that's what you're to bring. Mm -hmm. And you you know, there's a certain price when you leave the collective, as you just did when you left your job, occurs mm. a debt. And he said, you repay that debt by returning ultimately to the world, bearing the gift that you found in as a result of your making that departure. The hero's journey, right? The homecoming. Yeah, yeah. And, and in your case, sharing this with listeners to, to your podcast, I think it's one of the ways in which your gift um, then begins to be, you know, be spread among others. Thank you for saying that. And that's how I feel. I view it as well. And I, my current block now is I, um, I don't know the next step. I would differ a little bit. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> Good. I think your, your first call is to heal yourself. You know, the, the core is your personal analysis. It's not so much the, techniques or the concepts you learn it's your person what do you need to know about yourself that's that's the key because 
Yes, I guess it was Thoreau who said, uh, you know, who you are speaks so loudly that I don't have, I can't hear what you're saying. It was Emerson. Mm. You know, it's your your personhood that is what you share with people, and that's what ultimately comes through. And um, if one wound up becoming a professional analyst, that's a whole different animal. That's really a second half of life kind of issue. So, frankly, yeah. there you some pressure here. <laughs> you're ahead of yourself on this and just take the next steps you know your proper work at this moment is to keep asking you know good questions of yourself and see where they take you you're right i think my inner self knows that too and um it's helpful to hear that from someone i admire my final question for you is around the mention that you made of neediness in your book because throughout this burgeoning sense of self-awareness for me, and I've received hundreds of emails from listeners that echo this as well. People that identify with the traits of a BPD or any kind of emotion dysregulation, it's almost like we feel like, I'm speaking on behalf of a big group of us, I suppose, is this, it feels like there there is such a need inside of us for attention, validation. It's almost like we feel like human black holes. It's like there isn't enough love or validation in the world to fill it. Before I began my journey of self-reflection, I was that person that people may have had to take time away from because it was like I sucked all the energy out of the room. It was the Molly show, you know, trauma dumping, oversharing. And I'm sure that people in my life felt like they had no room for themselves to breathe or be. And looking back on those times in my life and my complete lack of self-awareness, it fills me with a lot of shame. Um, gonna make me cry because like all i wanted was to be accepted and to connect but that behavior achieved the exact opposite right and so now now that i'm more self-aware i find that i struggle with the opposite problem now that i'm now that i am aware of that tendency towards the emotional black hole neediness i find that i'm quite disconnected from my needs and so my question for you is is myself and many of my listeners are actually aware of this profound sense of neediness and their that tendency to kind of project our narcissistic wounds onto other people but as your book mentions how can we find that center of spiritual gravity between leaning on other people to connect you know because we need that but also being able to fill that empty hole inside of ourselves without expecting other people to do it for us or save us you know this is what I find myself the most stuck on in my own journey. Well, let me say, first of all, that I think your statement about yourself, where you were, where you are today, was insightful and I will say courageous because it represents an acknowledgement of what is. And it's unfortunate that it gets tangled up with shame because mm -hmm. I applaud this and say, all right, you know human need is human need it's it's profound um you know we're born powerless and defenseless and we all perhaps overlearn how uh, tiny and dependent we are yeah don't know is that we've been equipped by nature with the wherewithal the resources to survive and to thrive over time now, yes, we need protection as children until that begins to mature and develop and so forth. But, um, you know, again, need is not the problem. It's when it dominates this person or the situation that neediness tends to drive people away. 
and produces the opposite of what you were looking for in the first place, that relationship. But what you're really asking for there is, as you said, recognition and affirmation. Well, for one thing, you don't surround yourself with people who are not able to be relatively supportive. You don't surround yourself with people who are so caught up in their own stuff, they're never able to sit and listen to you. But on the other hand, the process here is, again, to risk going within and realizing, as I said before, there's something inside of you that is your inner wisdom that knows what's right for you. And when you're with that, when you're in conversation with that, when you're, you think about that, you're never fully alone. Mm. You know, you have a conversation that's very important. Mm. And, and it's not narcissism. It's not laziness. It's not withdrawing from the world. It's about undertaking a conversation with yourself in a way that when you return to the world, you're, you're like, frankly, more informed. You're coming from a more authentic place. You know, when I was a child, I was told, as most people, children are, you're supposed to be good all the time. Good was everything. Yep. Luke said, our task isn't goodness, it's wholeness. That's a big, a big difference. I wish I'd heard that sentence when I was younger. It would have made a difference in some of my choices. Mm. Wholeness means that you have to risk certain things in your life, and you have to cross certain lines, and you have to figure out, you know, not in a sociopathic way, I don't mean it that way, or a selfish way. I just mean that you have to decide, are you going to always try to fit in, or are you going to try to find your path? Mm. Your path, there's going to be times of self-doubt, there's going to be times of anxiety, there's going to be times of loneliness. But then if you don't take your journey, again, there's something stillborn here, something that's never allowed to come into fuller expression or you're living someone else's life and in instructions which is what happens commonly you know and and you know one of the things that was true so much of earlier uh, cultures was people were often defined by whatever their trouble their tribal um you know messages were this is who you are this is what you're like gender roles for example yeah we've we've lived in a time where a lot of those um fixities the word i invented here fixities have been deconstructed and you realize you know you're far freer than you thought you were mm. the question is what are you going to do with that freedom you know this is your life what are you going to do with it you know <laughs> yeah. it was, and always know that your choices may very well have uh, an impact on other people so you have to be mindful of that often people have said well you think i should do this or do that and i said yes you know, <laughs> find a way to do both as you were just saying i can't afford analysis well i understand that yeah. but then what's what's more important for you you have to take your journey seriously enough that you take those risks and it sounds to me like leaving your day job recently was one of those huge decisions and huge risks and i congratulate you for doing it Thank and you. there's no failure the, the only failure would be to be the failure to even have raised the question in the first place Beautifully put. And you just gave me the title of the episode. I wrote it down. Are you going to fit in or are you going to find your path? Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with me, Jim. Well, thank you, Molly, and best wishes to you. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James as much as I did. His new book, which you heard discussed in this very episode, again, is called A Life of Meaning, 
relocating your center of spiritual gravity. It was released on July 25th, 2023. So you're hearing this in the future. So it will be available to purchase when you hear this episode. This book, I can't explain to you the impact that it had on me. My copy is highlighted and dog-eared and you can't read a page without having an aha moment. I prepared for this interview with James as I was reading through the book and I can tell you that we only got into about a third of the questions that I had for him. So I encourage you if what he shared today resonated with you and you are also struggling with finding meaning if you feel like you are stuck in the stories you've been repeating your entire life your coping mechanisms and you're ready to break free of all of these patterns that have been holding you back and move towards a fuller and more integrated version of yourself then i highly recommend you check out his work and this new book as well as the work of other Jungian analysts. James mentioned Marian Woodman and her work has been powerfully transformative for me, hearing her words as a woman especially and how she overcame perfectionism deeply transformed my relationship with myself. The words of these Jungian analysts have become like spiritual teachers. They feel like my spiritual aunts and uncles. I can read their words and I feel so honored to live in a time where I can so easily access this information. That is a benefit of the digital age that we're in now. I will be linking to James's website as well as a link to the new book in the show notes. I have an ending announcement for all of you. As I mentioned in my interview with James about four months ago, I quit my job in tech to pursue podcasting full-time. It was a scary jump into the abyss, but one I am so happy that I made. I am beyond blessed that I am supported by my members on Patreon and Acast+. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and as many of you know, who are long-term listeners, I dipped my toe into the world of advertising by turning on automated ads at some point last year, and it interrupted the flow of the show. I wasn't really pleased with the advertisers that were being selected, and I felt like I had no control. And so even though it cost me the money that I was making, and it was a decent amount of monthly revenue, I decided to stick with my principles and turn off the ads and hope that in the future when the podcast continued to grow that a sponsor that was more deeply aligned with my values would approach me and want to work with me now a little story i told zaz a while ago that i had a feeling that the first sponsor that would reach out wanting to work with me would be BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an app which describes itself as, quote, making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. And the BetterHelp service gained popularity following its partnership with YouTubers such as Philip DeFranco and Shane Dawson. BetterHelp advertises itself, and boy, does it advertise itself. 
as an e-counseling provider and describes its mission as, quote, making professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anytime, anywhere. E-counseling, also known as e-therapy or online therapy, describes platforms that provide mental health services through the various means of online communication like email, text messaging, video conferencing software, or online chats. There are some major concerns regarding the effectiveness of these kinds of services. Even though online therapy might be more affordable than traditional therapy, it's mostly not covered by insurance companies. And also, despite feeling more anonymous when communicating with a therapist over the internet, as with almost every aspect of the internet, there remain some extensive privacy issues which are especially problematic considering that confidentiality is arguably one of the most critical aspects of therapy. A huge part of BetterHelp's advertising strategy has been the use of massive amounts of money pumped into influencer marketing. BetterHelp campaigns have now expanded over several social media platforms like YouTube, Instagram, and podcasts. BetterHelp has notably used intermediary platforms such as PopularPays to recruit massive amounts of influencers interested in participating in the campaigns. I know this because I received one of these recruitment messages from one of these third-party influencer marketing platforms directly from BetterHelp. BetterHelp has offered brand partnerships to influencers among the biggest on social media. You can't listen to four or five podcasts without hearing four or five advertisements for BetterHelp. I'm sure you've heard them yourself. Influencers like Shane Dawson and Philip DeFranco, as I mentioned earlier, have posted quote-unquote very personal videos about their struggles with mental health and encouraged their followers to seek help too. At the end of the video, the YouTubers proceed to promote the BetterHelp services, including affiliate links, which reportedly earn them money for every subscription contracted by one of their fans. Affiliate links are the equivalent of a retail clerk earning a commission for the sales they close, but in a digital way. These links have become a source of serious income for influencers as they earn commission payment on the clicks or sales driven on behalf of the brand. Some influencers make a full-time income only by using affiliate links on their accounts. However, due to scandals and recent legal changes, it's important to appropriately disclose affiliate links. Most influencers, most, comply with this by fear of backlash and include a clearly visible hashtag, hashtag ad, to disclose that the links are affiliate. Even though affiliate links have become very common in the world of influencers, in the case of BetterHelp, YouTubers have slowly become more cautious to partner up with BetterHelp after more and more unsatisfied customers started voicing out concerns, as well as the therapists who were providing care on these platforms. Some influencers have even retracted their stance or began calling out those who partnered up with BetterHelp. This included YouTube's giants PewDiePie, declaring that, quote, BetterHelp turns out to be even worse than I thought. The channel Memology even released a nine-part series on the BetterHelp scandal, providing detailed evidence of the platform's shady antics. A central element of the controversy around BetterHelp is that many people who signed up didn't realize the payment plans they purchased pulled the entire fee at the beginning, so they thought they were getting scammed. 
and many people were complaining that the therapists were being unresponsive or unhelpful and some people alleged that after filling out BetterHelp forms, BetterHelp told them to go somewhere else. According to Memology's nine-part investigation and others who've looked into this, BetterHelp can record your conversations with your therapist and sell the data it collects on you. There's an option to opt out, but you have to opt out. Otherwise, they'll take the information. Things have gotten even dicier as of recently. According to an investigation from March 2023, BetterHelp has now come under fire for improperly sharing its customers' sensitive personal data with outside platforms, including Facebook, Snapchat, Criteo, and Pinterest. In March, the FTC, or Federal Trade Commission, banned BetterHelp from all such activity moving forward and fined them $7.8 million and demanded changes in how BetterHelp handles their customer data, even the fact that BetterHelp refers to these people that come to them for help as customers or users should really give us pause to think. The current charges brought by the FTC against BetterHelp are fairly egregious. The FTC alleges that BetterHelp provided its users email addresses, IP addresses, and even responses to health questionnaires to third-party companies in an effort to help them more effectively target advertising. Though it's unclear whether there was a specific quid pro quo, that is, whether these companies were paying BetterHelp for the data, or there was some other kind of arrangement, this all still remains unclear. If that wasn't bad enough, BetterHelp then purposefully deceived its users about the nature of its data handling practices. According to the FTC's charges, the company guides and FAQs repeatedly assures users during the sign-up process that it would not disclose their personal health data. After a 2020 report in Jezebel raised red flags about how online health services, including BetterHelp, handled sensitive user data, the FTC charges executives provided their customer service team with misleading scripts, assuring users that their private information was actually safe. Then, just last June, a group of Democratic senators raised alarm bells about the data collection practices of talk therapy apps, sending open letters to BetterHelp and Talkspace executives specifically to request information about their relationships with online advertisers and social media platforms. Apparently, these were ignored. The BetterHelp website also features a HIPAA compliance seal, even though no government agency has actually reviewed the company's practices to determine if they even meet HIPAA requirements. In addition to the money, the FTC made a number of specific demands of BetterHelp. They're required to immediately stop sharing any individually identifiable information about their customers to third parties, to stop misrepresenting their data collection practices, to alert existing customers, note that phrasing, about whether or not their info has been shared, to obtain affirmative express consent before sharing any other information, and to create a comprehensive privacy program with actual oversight from an independent third party. BetterHelp's team has yet to address the allegations publicly, except for a statement on their website calling their practices, quote, industry standard, and suggesting that the FTC is using them as an example to, quote, set new precedents around consumer marketing. The company also stressed that it's never shared its members' names or clinical data from their therapy sessions. 
Nonetheless, they've agreed to fully comply with the new requirements. Recent reports from Vice and Newsweek both note that many BetterHelp customers have been complaining about the treatment they received on social media services like TikTok, with some of the discussions even going viral. Most of the issues come down to a lack of professionalism. One young woman complained to her assigned therapist taking a personal phone call in the middle of her session, while others cite a lack of interest or engagement from their providers. Other allegations have gone much further. A Miami woman going by Cat told Vice that her BetterHelp therapist flipped on her and insisted that she accept her boyfriend's suggestion that they enter an open relationship. Another patient suffering from CPTSD alleged that she was re-traumatized by her BetterHelp therapist and may never again seek mental health treatment. In December of 2022, the Wall Street Journal spoke with a 22-year-old gay patient whose BetterHelp therapist advised him to enter conversion therapy as a strategy for reuniting with his family. These complaints have made headlines and trended on social media, but they haven't slowed down BetterHelp in any way. The company raked in over $1 billion in revenue from more than 1 million customers in 2022, a $300 million increase over the year before. Currently, 25,000 therapists are featured on the platform, which host 50 million interactions last year alone. There's obviously a very real need for the kind of service BetterHelp and other virtual healthcare platform services provide. The question, though, becomes whether or not the companies that currently exist in this space can be trusted with our sensitive medical information, and if they can be compelled to protect the privacy of their quote-unquote users. Clearly, a service making $1 billion a year can afford to pay a $7.8 million fine. It will mean nothing to them. As well, BetterHelp's not the only problematic company in this space. The FTC's efforts against the company are part of a far-reaching campaign to address the way data brokers trade Americans' mental health data for profit. Last month, they also fined the online pharmacy and telehealth provider GoodRx $1.5 million for sharing consumer health data with Google and Facebook. Like BetterHelp, that company just paid the money without actually admitting to any wrongdoing at all. In 2022, 28 out of 32 mental health apps reviewed by Mozilla shared their users' personal information with third-party companies. It seems obvious that if we want to keep using these kinds of services, we'll need to somehow force them to maintain some basic level of discretion. Tristan Harris was a former Google design ethicist. He came up with a phrase that's been said many times since after, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Essentially what this means is, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You are the product being sold. Now, this isn't a unique thought, we all know it, but the articulation made it extremely relatable and easy to remember. In a world we live in now, distractions are a business and distractions can take us away from our own inner work and the big questions of life, similar to the ones that we discussed on today's episode. There's an old video published in 1973 by Richard Serra. It's actually now become established art, even being hosted by MoMA on their website. You can find this on YouTube by searching television delivers people. It says, the product of television, commercial television is the audience. 
television delivers people to an advertiser. There's no such thing as mass media in the United States except for television. Mass media means that a medium can deliver masses of people. Commercial television delivers 20 million people a minute. In commercial broadcasting, the viewer pays for the privilege of having himself sold. It is the consumer who is consumed. You are the product of TV. You are delivered to the advertiser who is the consumer. He consumes you. The viewer is not responsible for programming. You are the end product. You are the product delivered en masse to the advertiser. You are the product of TV. Now, this is just as relevant in today's day and age of social media. Consumers being consumed rings disappointingly true with where we're at right now, especially in the wake of this BetterHelp controversy. What's most tragic, especially with BetterHelp, is that these users or customers, in other words, real human beings, struggling with some of the most difficult time in their lives, making themselves vulnerable to seek out help, they're still being consumed. Their data is being sold and traded. This company is acting like big tech. It is a huge, massive corporation being irresponsible with the lives and data of the people who are choosing to trust it. Jeff Gunther, the therapist behind the TikTok account, The Therapy Den, posted a viral video breaking down why he thinks online therapy service provider BetterHelp shortchanges its professional therapists and clients. He says, hi, I'm a therapist who's connected to thousands of other therapists around the country. Most of us don't like what BetterHelp is doing to our industry. He goes on to claim that BetterHelp sells mental health information to third parties like Facebook, which we've already discussed. And he says BetterHelp therapists receive around $30 an hour, while a typical hourly rate for therapists is around $100 an hour. He also explains that BetterHelp pays therapists using a set word count in their tech service, which puts therapists in a difficult situation when hitting the word limit. Give clients free services or stop replying. Either choice can result in the resentment between clients and therapists. Gunther and therapists like him support making mental health care more accessible, but he notes that this is not how we've been trained, and we don't think this is a healthy therapeutic relationship. We don't think you should have 24-hour access to a therapist. That's going to create an expectation for you that we should always be there. That's not going to create self-reliance. In another viral video, Gunther showed viewers the wide-ranging pay scale that BetterHelp therapists have, which he indicates varies wildly from what therapists are actually typically paid. At the low end of the scale, 15 hours of work per week, which Gunther says is a typical full-time caseload, can earn a BetterHelp contractor around $27,000 annually. And in this same video, he calls out the company for failing to address the text therapy pay. I've heard similar stories from the therapists and mental health providers I've interviewed on this podcast. And this is why, when two weeks ago, BetterHelp reached out to me through a third-party influencer marketing platform requesting me to take part in a campaign. This campaign would earn me in the five digits of income. Now, as I mentioned, I took a pay cut when I quit my job. I would love to have sponsors on my podcast, but I want sponsors that align with my message. 
and so I didn't hesitate in declining. But what I did do was send a message to be shared with the BetterHelp team as to why I chose to turn down their offer. And here's what I wrote. After careful consideration and thorough research, I've made the decision to decline the offer to promote BetterHelp as a sponsor on my podcast. As someone with a commitment to the well-being of my audience, it's essential for me to align with brands that share the same values and principles. While BetterHelp is a prominent player in the mental health space, there are a few concerns that have led me to this decision. The recent FTC complaints regarding the disclosure of consumer health data raise valid privacy and trust issues. Additionally, my podcast is committed to promoting genuine, ethical, and effective resources for psychological health. It's come to my attention that BetterHelp's priorities may be more focused on big tech partnerships rather than providing optimal psychological care for their users. Moreover, the compensation of therapists working with BetterHelp has raised concerns within the mental health community, leading to some of the professionals I've interviewed to discourage the use of their services for proper end-to-end -end treatment. More than anything, I value the relationships I have with my listeners and the therapists who contribute to my podcast, and I want to ensure that any sponsorship I take on reflects a sincere belief in the products or services being promoted. Given the concerns I've outlined above, I don't feel comfortable endorsing BetterHelp to my listeners. I sincerely hope you understand my decision and the reasons behind it. I remain open to future opportunities that better align with my podcast's brand and message. If you have any other sponsorships that are in line with promoting mental health wellness and providing valuable resources to my audience, please don't hesitate to share them with me. Thank you once again for considering me for this partnership. I look forward to future and better aligned options. Now, the woman I spoke to said that she would pass this feedback on to the BetterHelp team, but I'm sure it won't change much that so many podcasts, even ones that claim to promote mental health, continue to choose big tech money over integrity. But that won't be me. You will never hear a BetterHelp advertisement on my podcast. It was the easiest money I have ever turned down. I decided to share this message with Twitter and I was, as someone who never uses Twitter, <laughs> inundated with incredibly supportive messages from the mental health community. And it means the world to me to have that support. I've even had a couple of people and companies, nonprofits reach out to me that are interested in discussing sponsorships, which I'm really excited about. I want you to know that if you ever hear anything advertised on this podcast in the future, it will be because I truly believe in what I'm advertising. I will always choose my values and integrity over money. That being said, I still want to buy a house one day. I still want to increase the revenue that I'm making so that I can grow my business, but only if it feels right. And so I hope this helps you develop a better understanding for BetterHelp, what it's up to, and why there's some controversy around this service. I encourage you to also do your own research. If you used BetterHelp and you find it to be helpful for you, well then, you can take what resonates with what I've shared here and leave the rest. Also, why I'm sharing this with you is because if you've ever considered becoming a member on Patreon, now is the time. If you want to support independent journalism, 
independent podcasting free of the influence of big tech, now is the time. Now is the time to pay for this content and ensure that I can continue doing the work that I'm doing. And if you happen to be working for or know of a company who would be deeply aligned with my work and would be interested in partnering with me in some kind of sponsorship, I would be welcome to hearing about those opportunities. You can reach out to me at backfromtheborderline at gmail.com. If you'd like to support me monetarily, you can join the Patreon community, and you can do that by clicking the link in the episode description. So that's it for today's episode of Back from the Borderline. You can support my work, as I mentioned, by becoming a member on Patreon, but you can also rate the podcast, write me a review, or share this episode with someone that you care about. To make sure you're notified each time I drop a new episode, follow Back from the Borderline on your favorite podcast app. I also share daily memes, quotes, and other reflections and resources with my Instagram community, and you can follow me there at Back from the Borderline. Never forget, you haven't met all of you yet. Within your weaknesses, your inner chaos and disorder lies your greatest strength. If only you dare to shine a light on it and transmute it. We have to get to the point where we're willing to be the fool to begin our hero's journey. And remember, anyone, even you, can come back from the borderline. See you next Tuesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.